First Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we urge you and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has given us his Holy Spirit. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may, uh, and that you may lack nothing. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful to you just because of who you are, because you're so much greater than all of what we lack. You're preeminent above everything. And Lord, you lift our heads and you lift our hearts and you bring us out of so much and you've brought us out of so much. And I pray, Lord, this morning as we study your word, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand what your will is for our lives. I pray that you would help us not only to understand it for our own benefit, but also for the benefit of others around us, Lord. I pray, Lord, you'd encourage anyone here that's discouraged, that needs uh, you to, to touch their mind and their heart and redirect them. I pray that you'd do that now. I pray, Lord, that you would put their focus on you and how great you are and how big you are and how there's nothing too difficult for you and that how all your promises are true and that you have a tremendous track record with them. I pray, Lord, that you would re readjust their focus onto you, Lord. I pray that you would use your body here to encourage them. And I pray, Lord, as we continue this time, Lord, that you would be blessed, that you'd be glorified. We pray that you would set it aside for your holy use. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As we continue on in our study through this book, uh, as we've seen, Paul is writing to new believers. They've known the Lord anywhere from three weeks to a few months. They were experiencing tremendous, tremendous persecution at this time. Timothy has recently returned from visiting them. He's given Paul, who's in Corinth now, with Timothy and Silas, a report regarding the health of this church there in Thessalonica. And it was a good report. And as we've seen, Paul in chapter 1 praises them for their growth, actually specifically praises the Lord and acknowledges their growth there in chapter 1, how their faith has gone out into all the, the area there so that he is in need of saying nothing to, uh, regarding their growth and how they're progressing. And then chapter 2, we saw uh, Paul speaking of his not coming to them in vain, that they were potentially dealing with some accusations that were coming against Paul, and he was saying, we didn't come to you in vain, 
we're authentic because of what's happened to you is authentic. In other words, you're, a real, belie- you're real believers, you've had real growth, and we are the ones that brought that message to you that authenticates our ministry. We didn't see you as a means to an end. Very important in ministry. We never see people as a means to an end regarding our motivation for why we're doing what we're doing for the Lord. We see them as the end. We see them as the beneficiary of our ministry. And the reason why we're serving is to, to obey God and to love his people, not supremely to have some need met in our own lives. That's what the New Testament teaches. Last week we saw Paul deal with their afflictions. He didn't want them stumbled by that. He knows that they're new believers. He knows that they could easily come to the wrong conclusion regarding what's, why they're going through what they're going through and why they're experiencing those things. They could potentially have thought that, that God has forgotten about them or is demonstrating he doesn't care about their situation. He knows that they're vulnerable, and he expresses to them, as we saw, that uh, I wanted to come to you, but I couldn't, and, and so don't misunderstand that, and, and that God's going to use these things for his purposes uh, in your lives. And so he gave them uh, specific instructions regarding that. Now he's going to continue with the theme of holiness uh, that he began with last week that we saw. If we read towards the end of chapter 3, he starts to talk about holiness and how to conduct ourselves, and especially in the context of difficulty and affliction. Sometimes, the, I mean, it's always important to be obedient to what God calls us to do, but it's, sometimes in the middle of a trial or an affliction or a difficult time, it's very easy to let those things go. And those are the times we really need to press into the Lord and really make sure that we're obeying him, and that will be a safeguard for us. Now, in this week, he's going to talk a little bit about relationships, basically holiness in the context of relationships. And he's going to divide up our 12 verses this way. The first eight verses, Paul's going to speak of how, how we ought not to conduct ourselves in the context of other relationships with holiness in mind. And then verses 9 through 12, Paul's going to speak, with, speak to how we should have uh, relationships with others. So he's going to talk about ungodly relationships and then godly relationships. That's kind of how it divides up. Now, all of this is important because God gets to define what our lives is, are supposed to look like. In our culture especially, this culture is pressing in upon us in every way through so many different means on what our lives are supposed to be like. What, we're, what our lives are supposed to look like, what we're supposed to say, what, are, what we're supposed to engage in. And the standard is getting lower and lower, even in many Christian circles. So much of the world's influence is even creeping into professing Christianity. To where if someone says, no, God cares about our personal holiness and there's a high standard there, that sometimes people look at us as we're legalistic or we're, uh, you know, whatever the accusation might uh, sound like. It doesn't seem realistic in their mind for us, but it's very realistic, and God has expectations. He said we are not our own in Scripture, that we are bought with a price. So we were on that slave block, so to speak, just like the slaves had been in times past, especially in this time, and we were purchased off that slave market by God. He purchased us with his own blood. So he gets ownership of our lives, and he gets to define what our lives are supposed to look like. So for us, it's healthy for us to see. And sometimes we look at all these verses, especially, you know, we're going through these books and there's so much exhortation. I mean, it's just overwhelming sometimes, all that God wants to speak to us about and, and what he wants to correct. And we can get a little bit overwhelmed. It's, 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 all this is important. Every bit of it's important. Every bit, of, every bit of it is needed. We need to see him repeat things. Sometimes we look at the scriptures and go, God repeats things over and over again. 
There's a very good reason why he repeats those things. For one, we forget. Number two, we, we change in terms, I don't know if you've noticed, but with my life, I mean, my level of practical holiness ebbs and flows uh, depending on, you know, how I want to be obedient from one moment to the next. And so we may be obeying something in the scriptures that we read one time, but then by the time we get to another book, we're, we're ta it's, he's talking about the same thing. But at that current time, I need to hear that because I'm not living up to that, that standard in my life at the moment. So sometimes it can seem repetitive, but all scripture is given by inspiration. And, and we need every part of it in the proportion in which God has revealed it. So it's very important that we see that because there's, there's implications for not living how God wants us to live. Not just for our own lives, but for others that are watching. And more importantly than all those uh, things is how God is affected, how, he, his, how his heart is grieved, and how he, what his assessment is of my life. So God wants us to grow in godliness and maturity. I've said it over and over again. God's goal in our lives is to bring us into Christian maturity, not to bring us the, uh, the most happiest life in the world, not to bring us the most comfort in life. That's the American dream, and that's not necessarily what God has for our, for our lives. And the only way what we'll find the truth of that, the only place that someone's going to tell us the truth is in the scriptures. And it, because increasingly and increasingly, even in Christian or religious uh, venues or circles or contexts, we're not getting that. We're getting how to make your life the most successful, prosperous, you know, comfort-filled, happy life that we could possibly have. And that's true that God wants us to have a blessed life, but he gets to define what, bless, <laughs> what blessing means. And Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's a totally different than a life of just self-indulgence and self-focus. Now, Paul begins, inspired by the Spirit in verse 1, where he says, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. I love how Paul says, finally, when he's, not, he's barely even halfway done <laughs> through the letter. Finally. I don't know if he's like a preacher where he doesn't know how to end, and he's just trying to start his, you know, he's starting his descent, and he's trying to find a landing place, or, or, or he's just, this is, this is a, the main thrust of what I'm going to say to you for the rest of the book. I don't know, but he, he, he is, he's finishing kind of his, his second part of, of the book here, and, and he says, uh, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus. That's very important for us to see. This wasn't Paul's idea. This wasn't any man's idea. His authority came from the Lord Jesus because his calling came from the Lord Jesus. And he said, I urge you, we urge you, and we exhort you that you should abound more and more. Because he's wanting them to grow. Remember, they've already grown substantially. He went over all in chapter 1, as I mentioned, the extent to which they've grown spiritually. And so he's marked that. He's, he's noted that. But he wants them to abound more and more. It's great when people can encourage us and help us to, to go further in the things of the Lord. And, and even on, a, on an earthly plane or, or a physical plane. Sometimes we think about those teachers that we've had or those mentors that we've had or people that are very, have been very significant in our life that they get the best out of us. Can you think of anybody like that in your past or in your life now? They push you. I had this PE teacher in seventh grade, seventh and eighth grade, I'm not going to say his name because he still lives close by. Uh, but nothing bad to say about him at all. It, the problem was not with him. The problem was with me. And he, he, they had this trunk program where you'd earn these different color trunks and you would achieve certain physical things. And 
I, I hated discipline generally, and so physical discipline, I just wasn't into that yet. You know, that my breakdancing career hadn't started yet. I wasn't, I wasn't into that yet. And so he had to do all these crazy things like run laps. Well, what is he thinking? Well, I'm, you know, just one grade ago, I'm playing on the playground, you know, playing tag and you're it and free, you know, freeze tag and all these variations. And now we're having to run laps. I mean, even, even up to three miles. I mean, I can't believe this, this guy would do this to me. And so I complained and I made my case. And I complained to my mom and sadly, my mom came to my defense. And he, she came to that school and she, she kind of chewed him out and, and, and raked him over the coals and, and he put up with all of it and everything, but he still kept pushing me. And he still kept encouraging me that I could do more and more. And finally, almost three quarters of the way through my seventh grade year, I finally got it that this, this is something that's good for me. You know, it took me that long, being always kind of slow. And, and uh, so I started trying to, and, I've, and I, got, I got by the middle of my eighth grade year, I was able to get uh, my red trunks, which is like the first step. And there's two other trunks I never got, you know, I mean, uh, and then I was so proud of that. And I got to high school in the ninth grade. Now, you know, people were wearing them in high school and everyone was looking at them like, what, what is that? <laughs> you know, what are those trunks? They look weird. Uh, so it kind of lost that special place. But, you know, he really pushed me. And so that's what Paul's doing. He's trying to push me. He's trying to exhort them, not to strive in their own strength, but in the Lord, to go further. And I know that uh, all of us want to encourage one another to go further in the Lord. And leaders, are that's their calling to do that, but it's not just the leader's role. It's all of our roles is to encourage one another. We're told in Scripture to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. To exhort one another weekly? Nope. Yearly? Nope. Biannually? Nope. Daily. Daily. We should be exhorting somebody daily because somebody needs to be exhorted daily. Of course, ourselves, we're at the beginning of that, of course, uh, regarding when, how we should be, you know, changing in our, in our own lives. So, so Paul is saying, I've already acknowledged your growth, and, uh, but you can grow more. I want you to abound more and more. Sometimes we think that it's up to us how far we want to grow in our walk. You ever think about that? It's up to me. God puts the ball in my court. I can grow as much or as little as I want. That's not the case at all. God says, it's up to me how much you grow. And I want you to increasingly grow and grow and grow and get more mature and, and step out and become more and more of a disciple. So God's always working for that to happen in our lives. Now, Paul's going to deal with their walk and how to please God. He says that at the end of verse 1. And I want to speak for a moment about pleasing God, because sometimes that causes some confusion with some of us regarding how do I do that, or and, you know, sometimes we think, is that possible? I mean, because I know myself, and I know how flawed I am, and how sinful I am, and I know how perfect God is. So how in the world am I supposed to please God? Does God expect my life to please him? Well, verse 1 says so. He says we ought to walk and to please God. So obviously God answers that question, yes. It is possible for us to please God. And sometimes we say, I'm not even going to try because I'm aware of my shortcomings and I can't be perfect. And that's not something that we should use as a cop-out. Because pleasing God is in the moment. He's not looking at the totality of our life and especially our past and judging whether or not we're pleasing him. With It's moment by moment. Every time I'm given a decision to obey him or disobey him, I have an opportunity to please him or not. It's moment by moment. And so we can do that. Colossians chapter 1 verse 10, we've already seen this as we studied in the last book that we studied. He says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, 
and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then two chapters ago in our book here, he told him this, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, or the idea is pleasing God, who tests our hearts. We can please God, and we ought to please God. By his grace and by his power, for sure. Can't do that in our own strength. It has to be by his power. And some of our frustration can come because we've been trying to be obedient to the Lord in the power of our own strength. And we can't live this supernatural life to which God's called all of us without supernatural power. Supernatural life requires supernatural power. So that's why we have to go to him and seek him and seek his power, seek to be filled with the Spirit, to be refilled with the Spirit, to be yielded over to him, to be abiding in him so that he can bear fruit through our lives. Now notice Paul in verse 1 uses the word how in speaking about pleasing God. They knew that they were supposed to please, please God, but he's talking about how to do that. And he says the specifics of how to do it in verse 2. Look with me there. He says, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. You know, sometimes we complicate things. <laughs> I know I do. I can take the simplest of things and make it very complicated. Some of the leaders will say amen to that. I can complicate, overanalyze. Okay, I'm aware of my weaknesses with that. But God simplifies things very simply here. And in verse 2, he tells us that how we please God is to obey his commandments. It's very simple. simple. It's not complicated to understand. It may be complicated to do in any given moment. That's why we need that supernatural strength. But that's how we please God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, someone may look at that and go, well, we have to earn our salvation then. That's not what he's saying. If I know Christ, my heart will be to obey him. And the life of obedience will mark my life if I'm a Christian. He also said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. They came to him and said, your mothers and brothers are outside and they couldn't get in. And he said, those that are, the, my true family are those that obey uh, my Father in heaven who, do, who does my will. And then John, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, said it this way. He said, and the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So that's the most important thing. What is his will and am I doing it? James, the Lord Jesus' half-brother, said in James chapter 2, verse 20, But do you not know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And then he later said, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And we think about works, and we know that we're not saved by our works, and because of that, we can think, kind of minimize the importance of works in our lives. But all through the scriptures, you see God emphasize the importance of works, of works, of works. He's, a, he's ordained that we should walk in the works that he's prepared for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. So at any given moment, God says, are you going to obey or are you going to disobey? Very, very simple. He's boiled it down to very simple terms. I need simplicity regarding these things. I need to see it. So he says, why do you call me Lord if you don't obey the things that I say? And that's a good thing to ask ourselves right now. Do we call Jesus Lord? And if we do, do we have a pattern in our life of disobedience or do we have a pattern of life in our lives of obedience? 
And are we increasing in our obedience to the Lord? Is that something that's working in our lives and we're going on the right trajectory? Or are we going within the wrong trajectory, going downward? It's a good thing because we can be religious with the best of them. We can just go through the motions. We can come to church. We can, you know, endure the pastor and his bad jokes and I'm talking about breakdancing and all these wacky things. There's a lot of things that are easier in life. And, there's, and, and, and what's easier than, than enduring uh, ritualism is giving our heart to Christ. And so God knows our hearts. He knows if we're faking it. He knows if we're putting on a show. He knows if we're, we're one way in our hearts and different outwardly. He knows all of that. And he's, what he's saying by the Holy Spirit this morning is quit it. You need to turn to me and surrender to me and, and, and give up those things that you're holding on to. Your identity is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who you really are. That's who your identity is, not all these other things that can compete with that. And God says, come and follow me. You're my child. You're my daughter. You're my son. Surrender to me with everything, and I will work through your life like you never, ever dreamed. And so he, that's what he's saying to us this morning. So Paul's not saying, these are my suggestions to a happy, comfortable life. These are my, he's saying, no, this comes from um, the Lord Jesus. This is what we're saying to you with the authority that God has given us. For, he's, for this is the will of God, he says in verse 3, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. So we wonder sometimes, What's God's will for us? I get that as a, uh, as a pastor. I get that question, you know, please pray for me. I want to know God's will. And you know, there's a lot of times where God just spells it out in his word clearly. And this is one of them in verse 3. For this is the will of God for your life, your sanctification. And sanctification means to be set apart, the process of being set apart. It means it's the same word that's translated holy. It means to, to be set apart. Well, what is holiness? Holy, well, what, what, what isn't holiness? First of all, it's not, you know, speaking in King James English and, uh, you know, kind of levitating spiritually around, you know, and you're better than everybody and you're marked by all the things that you don't do, you know, regarding man-made rules or having an external holiness standard, you know, that I, I have my hair a certain way or what, I dress a certain way or whatever it is, all these man-made things. It's not that. And God has made that simple. The definition of holiness is the Lord Jesus He's, you want to know what holiness is, just look at the Lord Jesus. That's why being a disciple is doing what Jesus does, saying what Jesus says in response to what Jesus gives. That's a disciple. And in, as we grow in an increasing way, that is what our life looks like. So it's something that is used for, has exclusive use. Just like in that temple or that tabernacle, the shovels and the, you know, the censers and all the things that were used, they were special. They were only to be used for that purpose. They weren't even to be used for similar things in other contexts, to say nothing of used, to be used for something that's, uh, you know, sinful. And that's the context here. He's talking about our bodies being a temple of the Spirit. He's saying your body is supposed to be used for God, not to say nothing of not being used for wickedness, but supposed to be used for God, not yourselves, and, and, or to spend your life on yourselves. Our lives are supposed to be different. I want to read a passage to you that speaks of how we're supposed to live different kind of lives in this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. Paul writes by the Spirit, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Baal? 
Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. For I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord. We are distinct. Now, people have taken that and made that into all kinds of crazy things in terms of what it means to be distinct and all kinds of man-made standards. The difference is a Christ-like life. If we live a Christ-like life, we're different. We're different in this world. We're loving like no one loves. We're forgiving like no one forgives. We're having, having patience like no one can have patience. We're turning the other cheek. We're loving our enemies. We're giving to the poor. We're not ignoring the people with the signs along the road. We, we, are, we are watching what Jesus watches, thinking what Jesus thinks, seeing what Jesus sees, talking the things that Jesus would say. And, and so that's a different kind of life. And God gives us such clarity in the scriptures that makes all these other philosophies and books and standards within Christianity completely, uh, um, you know, shown to be what, for what they really are. Not true. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, to not grieve the spirit. What does he mean? It means we're taking the spirit with us wherever we go. And, and we have to realize wherever, when we're going somewhere, wherever we go, and we could just, you know, in front of that computer, in the movie theater, among certain friends, or whatever it is we could say where we could potentially compromise in terms of these things for our lives. We're bringing God with us. We're bringing Jesus to that movie. We're bringing Jesus to that context. But at one point, Paul says, if you join yourselves to a, a prostitute, don't you know you're joining Christ with the, with the prostitute? So if, we're, if we can do that, we can bring Jesus to, in other contexts. We're supposed to be different. And, and I wanted to say, if we're, we're very guilty and we know that we're falling short in these areas, this isn't meant to be condemning or, or to heap this you know, unbearable guilt on you. It's God saying, turn to me. I have a different plan for your life. Quit playing these things. Quit playing this, this game. If some of you here are playing the game here regarding your relationship with God, it's time to repent and it's time to turn to him and, and ask for forgiveness. Another point in, in our chapter that we're going to see uh, next week, or not next week, in a few weeks, he's going to talk about not quenching the spirit. That's throwing water on the fire of the spirit in our lives. Because we're engaging in things that we shouldn't engage in. We're supposed to be different. And he says at the end of the verse, he says that you should abstain from sexual immorality. And God is de- going to deal with this. And, and I know that may not be a, you know, a perky subject for us. And, but it's important. It's important for us because we live in an environment that this sexual promiscuity is so rampant. And it takes people out. And it does so much damage to uh, our lives and to families. But this isn't something that's unique to us. This was very prolific in their time. Very, very prolific. It was their, their environment. There was no shame related to it. There was no one speaking against it. There was no stigma. There was no, it was just accepted. And these, they had these temples or these, where they, these uh, temple prostitutes would be there and you would serve these false gods by engaging in sexual immorality. And it was just rampant in that culture. Paul knows that they're steeped in it. And it's all around them. And many of them had a, a, you know, a lot of experience in that. They had a lot of memories. They had a lot of grooves that have been worn in their minds. Just like a record has grooves in it. And so the, the, he knows that. And so he's speaking to this. And, and, 
He, and, and he knows that it's going to be very difficult for them to walk in obedience, just like it would be for anybody that had given over certain areas in their life uh, to those things. One ancient writer from that time said this. He said, we keep prostitutes for pleasure, we keep mistresses for the day-to-day -day needs of the body, and we keep wives for the faithful guardianship of our homes. Now, it hasn't quite got there yet in our culture, but it wouldn't surprise me if we got there. But the shock wasn't there that we would be here today regarding some of those things. Uh, but it's getting worse and worse in our culture. And as Christians, it shouldn't even be named among us. That's what he says in other places in the New Testament. So we see, first of all, God's expectations. Because some of us uh, who have struggled in these areas, maybe we're, we're, we don't have victory in that. And we're, or we haven't had been able to have a lot of victory in that. And we think it's not possible. And we start believing the lie that that I, I can't get free from this type of behavior. Well, God says right here we can because he doesn't give any exceptions here. He doesn't say, well, only for, you know, you can walk in obedience to this except if you, you know, had a bad childhood or you, you, you know, had that as a coping mechanism growing up or whatever it is. I'm not minimizing the pain of that. I experienced a lot of pain growing up and dealt with things uh, in, an, in an immoral way in many ways. So I'm not minimizing the pain of that. He doesn't give exceptions here, and that breaks through the lie that I can't get free from this. And so, so often it's in the men have this struggle, but women have it too. But so often men have this struggle, and I want to give you hope today if you're here and you struggle in these areas. God can give you everything, and he has given you everything that you need to walk in obedience in this. And, and you have to, it comes through prayer. It comes through being, having your mind renewed. It comes having healthy boundaries in your life. It comes with being accountable. I mean, there's many ways that God has in his little tool chest to help us in walking in obedience and freedom in this, but nevertheless, he expects us to do that. Now, he says in verse 4 that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Notice in verse 4, he, he says that, know how to possess his own vessel. He doesn't say you are your own vessel. He says you possess. You know, our bodies are something that, that contains who we really are. We're, the true us is, is a spirit. We're a spirit. And someday we're going to get our new bodies, and that's going to make the totality of who we really are. But right now it's like as if we're driving in a car, and a car breaks down someday, and then we get out and start walking. Someday our, we're going to lay down this tent, and we're going to get a new body. But before we do, we're going to get out of this tent and we're going to, our true self is going to be going on uh, ahead of this body until he resurrects our bodies. But he says we should know how. Notice the word how again. How to possess his own vessel. Not someone else's vessel. We worry about a lot of other vessels. <laughs> and that's what he's trying to deal with, you know. Leave other vessels alone, you know. But he's saying you know how to possess or control our own vessel. In what? In sanctification and in honor. Because he's talking about how not to possess. He's been talking about how not to possess our own vessel in sanctification. And, and, and how not to, to walk in, in, in honor. And in fact, he's talking about walking in dishonor. And our bodies are something that should be uh, glorifying God. Not only in our spirit, but in our bodies, we're told in Scripture. Not in passion of lust. What is lust? Lust is desiring something, coveting something that doesn't belong to us. That's what lust is. That's why if you're married, you can't lust after your wife. Or if you're married, you can't lust after your husband because they belong to you. It's impossible. 
You've never dealt with lusting after your wife, man. I'm just telling you, that's, that's a fact. You never have. You've desired her, but you've never lusted after her. But he says, you're not like the Gentiles who do not know God. He's saying, you're different. I think that's good for us to hear again. We're different. We don't, we don't live like everybody else in this world. We get to be different. Not have to be. We get to be different. It's a privilege. And he said, don't be like them who don't know God. And that's God's assessment of, of those out in the world. They don't know God. They can say they know God all they want. But they don't know God. And so we, we have the privilege of living differently. Verse 6. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. And I want to stop there before we read the, re the rest of the verse. This is interesting. Because here Paul says through the Spirit that having these, these uh, ungodly relationships with other people equates with taking advantage of them and defrauding them. You ever think of that? That when you're sexually uh, promiscuous, you are defrauding the other person. If you're married, you're defrauding your spouse. If, and the person that you're sinning with, you're defrauding their spouse. If you're unmarried and you're, you're being, uh, you know, you're fornicating and you're, you're sinning outside of that marriage, uh, you're not married yet, you're sinning against your future spouse. And you're sinning against their future spouse. Or, or if they're married, you're, you're, you're sinning against their current spouse. You're defrauding them. You're, you're causing damage to them. You're taking advantage to them. Of them, rather. And, the, and, and that just reminds me of, of, of how painful it is to, to engage in these things. Because, the, the, like, the media never talks about the whole story. Never says the damage that it does. They, they like to talk about, you know, uh, how all these flings and all these, you know, and they, they, they gloss over it like it's you know, kind of uh, romantic or, or has something that would be appealing and they, they, they glamorize it in a sense. But they never talk about the cost. They never talk about what, what the, the great price people pay by, by engaging in this. The broken families and the hurt, the hurt marriages and all these things that cause, causes damage. God doesn't pull back anything. He says, you're defrauding. You're taking advantage and, and you're defrauding somebody. And, and it's, you need to take that very seriously. It's not a, something that we should have a cavalier attitude um, for. Now Paul, the rest of verse 6, uh, gives the reasons uh, and, and beyond gives some reasons why we shouldn't uh, engage in defraud uh, other people with this behavior. He says, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. So the first reason why we shouldn't defraud our brother in this is that the Lord will avenge that behavior. And you were told in the verse that Paul has forewarned them. In the short time that Paul was with them, three weeks, it was so rampant in their culture and they were struggling with this so much. As, as new Christians, he forewarned them that early. How often do you see in a Christian foundation class someone warning about this kind of thing? But Paul does it. He doesn't have any problem doing it there. So he gives them this strong warning. Now, what does that mean? That God will be the avenger on those that are, that are inflicting this type of pain on people and, and, and uh, defrauding people? Well, for, for sure we know he's going to discipline them. He's going to discipline we forget that God disciplines his children. Read Hebrews chapter 12. He disciplines those that he loves, and he's very good at it. I don't know about you, but I've experienced some good paddling in the past by the Lord. He's very good at, at disciplining us. And if you're engaged in this behavior, he's going to discipline your life. He loves you enough to do it. And, and so that's something that we need to see and something that we need to take heed of. He's going to discipline us, but also uh, John talks about that there's a sin that leads to death. 
I believe we can, we can speed up our physical death by engaging in certain behavior. And this may be one of the behaviors that he's talking about, that we, we will speed up and expedite our, our, our death in, in because of the, the process of sin that we're engaged in. The second reason for not engaging in this behavior is that it's against our calling. Look with me in verse 7. He says, For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. There's a story of Augustine, the church father, uh, contemplating whether or not he should become a Christian or not. And he, was, he didn't know if he could you know, be obedient. He knew what the standard was regarding uh, sexual purity. He didn't know if he could do it. And so he was concerned about it. He was weighing it, and he finally made that decision to receive Christ. And then one day it's reported that he was walking down the street, and a woman with which he had relations previously came up to him and said, you know, Augustine, it's me. And he turned around and walked away fast. And she came after him and walked after him really fast and grabbed him and turned him around and said, it's me. And he goes, I know, but it's not me. And that's something that's always <laughs> stuck with me ever since I've, I've read that, that we're different. We're, we're different. We get to be different. That's not our calling to, to live in uncleanness. And that's what he's talking about there. But in holiness, he said to glorify God in your body. He's called us to be different. He's called us to be separate. He's called us to not live like the rest of the world. And we can push back on that, can't we? We can push back on what God says. And Paul actually anticipates that in verse 8. He says, therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man. But God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. The third reason why we shouldn't defraud anyone else regarding uh, this type of behavior is that we're rejecting God when we reject that instruction. And, and man and woman, whoever it is, whoever we may know, even our own lives, in our own lives, ourselves, we can reject that and try to still say we love God and that we're still right with God. But God right here in verse 8 says, if someone rejects this teaching and does it anyway, is rejecting God, not man. That's the authority that, that Paul's laying down here. It's not my words, it's not my idea. It's God, what God says. So God's standard is, is very high, and it doesn't matter what this world says. It doesn't matter if every single one of us in this world, however many billion people there are, six billion or seven billion people in this world, if we all unanimously in concert said, it's okay to engage in this behavior. God still says it's wrong. We can try to redefine whatever it is we want to try to redefine. We can make the standard lower. God holds the standard here. And as long as I'm here, I'm going to be teaching God's word by his grace and holding that standard where it is. But I'm also going to be gracious and encouraging and helpful because, because that's what I need for my own life regarding these things. I need God every step of the way regarding being obedient to him. The, the fourth and final reason he gives us for not defrauding our brothers in the second half of verse 8. He says, who has given us his Holy Spirit. You ever wonder why he puts that in that verse right there? Why did Paul say that right there? Why did Paul say who has given us his Holy Spirit? It's because it's the Holy Spirit. It's him who gives us the capacity and the victory over this. He's the one that gives us the, the, the capacity to live obedient lives. We're told in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He doesn't say by your own means you put to death the deeds of the body. That's just bare-knuckling it. 
and, and using more, just trying harder. That's not what God's called us. If, we, if we're engaged in that, we're going to fail every time regarding being, being, being obedient to him, especially in this area. But if by the Spirit, that means in that moment of weakness, and this is true for any area, in my moment of weakness, in my moment of temptation, I submit myself to God in my heart, and I pray, and I ask God for the strength. I ask the Holy Spirit to give me self-control. That's a fruit of the Spirit. And, and to, to ask Him for the strength to be obedient to Him. Every single time we do it, God will give us the power and the capacity to do it. We're told elsewhere in Scripture, He's given us a way of escape so, so, so that we won't be tempted beyond what we're able to bear. So there's no excuses. God's given us the capacity to walk obediently to him, but it has to be through the Holy Spirit. Paul also said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now we can say that all day long. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? It means to yield ourselves to God moment by moment. It means to, to put, on, put off the old man, put on the new man. It means to to submit ourselves to God in our hearts and, and confess our sins to him. And when he says for us to do something, we obey what he says by his grace. And if we're on that trajectory, we're going to start becoming more and more like Christ. But we can't forget that all of God's resources is behind that endeavor. If we forget that, we're going to get discouraged. And we're going to think that, you know, I can never be free from this or I can never be obedient to God. It's not the case. We can be obedient to God. And Paul gets to, to, uh, to something a little bit different, and he changes from how not to act to how we're supposed to act in verse 9. He says, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that we should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Very important for us to see these two verses. So, the ungodly relationships regarding holiness, we've already seen, verses 1 through 8. Now, how are real relationships in the body of Christ and those outside the body of Christ, what are they supposed to look like in the context of holiness? Because those are the only two people that we're going to come in contact with as unbelievers and believers in this world. And there's a right way to be in, in, in both of those contexts there. So he says, brotherly love, well, I've been talking about what people call love regarding sexual morality, but now I'm talking about real love, brotherly love there. I don't have a need to write to you. You're taught directly by God. He knows that the Holy Spirit himself was teaching these believers to love one another, quite apart from him saying anything. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He teaches us to love, that we should love one another, to be very specific about how we care for people, to be aggressively looking out for people's needs, to be supportive, to be in prayer for people, to write little notes of encouragement, to, to help them monetarily, to whatever, whatever it might be, to be actively seeking out. Where are we doing that in the body of Christ? He wants us as a body to grow and grow and grow in that. And, and that's what I've been so excited to see because we have been growing in that. We have been growing in love for one another, but he wants us to abound and increase more and more and more. Verse 11. That you should aspire to leave a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as, I, as we commanded you. That you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you, should, that you may lack nothing. Now this isn't some separate topic. This is how we should see other people and engage other people in proper relationships and holiness here. And he starts with 
we should aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind our own business, to work with our hands. Now, what's the common denominator between all those three things? They're not separate individual things. They're all related. They're, they're not seeing another person supremely as my source of fulfillment in life. And, and they, whether it be vocationally or monetarily, or whether it be in, in, in how I get fulfilled in life, when we're talking about a quiet life, it's talking about having a, a reflective life, not just a, a, a stimuli-driven uh, life. We, have a, we live in a very, um, you know, intense world where there's all the stimuli coming our way with everything that we have in our hands, from our cell phones to our computers to our TV to, to movies or whatever it might be. We have a lot of stimuli, and we have a lot of relationships that we can feed off of in an unhealthy way. And he says, live a quiet life, and because it gives us time to be reflective. It gives us time to be contemplative about our relationship with him. It gives us time to hear him. Sometimes we think, I never hear God's voice. Well, turn down the volume and everything else. <laughs> turn it down. Be quiet. When, when's the last time some of us got away just between us and the Lord, went for a walk, or spent a whole afternoon just between us and him, living a quiet life where all the voices are turned down? And we can just hear from him. But also not engage in everyone else's business and getting our identity from what's going on in other people's lives. Nor getting what we can get from other people monetarily. It's going to God first and what we are supposed to be functioning uh, in the middle of regarding our relationship with him. And not getting that from other people. And this wasn't just unique to them. It's for all believers to live this kind of, of life. And then not just... Uh, with those people that we know, but also those on, on the outside that we know, verse 12, those that don't know Christ. That, and he says, that's important for you to walk in the right way regarding their lives and holiness, because you may, he doesn't want us to lack anything. Notice the, verse, the end of verse 12. That he doesn't want us lacking. If you're lacking right now, that's not God's will for you, to be lacking. So these are the instructions for you and for me regarding how we should live fulfilled lives, complete lives. That's what he's saying about not lacking anything. God, when he got us, he got a, a project. That's been well said. That he wants us to continue to grow. One 19th century pastor said this. He said, I'm not what I should be, and I'm not what I used to be, and I'm not what I'm going to be. We're in process. We're going forward, and that's what he wants. So uh, I just want to encourage you, if you are one that has been really struggling, I want to encourage you that God hasn't given up on you. He's gracious. He's patient with you and me. And it, or if, if you're doing, you feel like you're doing pretty well. You're not on cruise control. That's not a, quote, luxury that we get to engage in. It's not a luxury at all. There's no cruise control. There's no status quo. He wants us to push on further and grow. So how do we do that? We press into him. We take advantage of what he's provided in our lives regarding growing closer to him. We take advantage of who he's provided regarding our relationships and having them pour into our lives. Very important. And then we watch ourselves. We take heed of our lives. I know we don't usually say take heed. That's, that's definitely, uh, you know, biblical jargon there. But we pay attention. We live sober lives. We pay attention to what God's doing in our lives. And, and then we listen to what his spirit is telling us. He wants us to be like himself. And that's a privilege. Let's pray together. Thank you for making us like yourself, Lord. And I pray, Lord, you'd encourage any that are, that are engaged in sexual sin. I pray, Lord, you'd give them hope. I pray that you'd redirect them. I pray that you encourage them that you're patient and you're, 
you're waiting for them to come to you and to, and to help them walk obedient lives before you. And I pray, Lord, that we as a body also would just grow in love for one another. I pray you would help us, Lord. Please remind us of when we're being selfish and thinking about ourselves and not looking around of who you've placed in our lives, not just here, Lord, but outside in all the places in which you've placed us to be paying attention to needs. You've given us opportunity all around us all the time. Lord, help us to see those opportunities so that we can be like you. Help us to be the most holy Christians that we possibly can be so we can bless your heart, so we can properly respond to what you've blessed us with. And if there's any here that are stiffening their heart against this, Lord, I pray you'd break through to them that they're just running from the best life that you've ever laid out for us to live. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.